Good morning. Um, Before we start, I'm going to read the passage. We'll be looking at Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. So I invite you to turn there, and then I will pray, and we will begin. The Apostle Paul writes, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of the Father. Please pray with me. Our glorious Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your word, which is such a sure and steady guide. Lord, as we come before your word this morning, what we need is for you to speak. We need to hear your voice, Lord, by the power of the Spirit. And so I pray, Lord, that you will use your word to bring conviction, that you will use your word to bring encouragement, And most of all, help us to see a glimpse of the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we may worship him in spirit and in truth. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So Sarah and I just enjoyed an evening at the Derby Dinner Playhouse for their production of A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. As most of you know, A Christmas Carol recounts the story of a miserly old wretch, Ebenezer Scrooge, He is such a miserable character that his name has become synonymous with joy-killing, fun-hating greed. And that is quite fitting because Ebenezer Scrooge is a miserable man laden with vices. And throughout, one of the most evident is Scrooge's stinginess. Scrooge seems to care only about gaining more money for himself. Throughout the play, Christmas is painted as a season of giving and joy and cheer. And Scrooge saunters onto the scene the perfect picture of self-absorption. While everyone is spreading Christmas cheer, Scrooge treats them all as an inconvenience at best and with abject scorn at worst. The contrast is so stark to see someone who is utterly consumed with their own selfish gain on the backdrop of a wonderful season of giving. In our own lives, we have all seen a Scrooge, and I'm sure that many of us, if we're honest, have uttered our own bah humbug. But our passage this morning gets at the true character of Christmas by getting at the true character of the one who made Christmas to be. And this is where Paul directs our focus. Look with me at the first four verses of chapter 2 just to get some context. Starting at first with verses 1 and 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Notice Paul's main concern here. Paul is concerned about the unity of the body of Christ, and so Paul exhorts the Philippians, encouraging them to be of one mind. 
Paul's concern for unity reflects the very concern of Christ himself. If you remember his prayer in John chapter 17, Jesus prays to the followers that he, or to the Father that his followers would be one just as he and the Father are one. Now this unity is not a unity that compromises truth. It's not a unity at all costs. This unity is grounded in the truth of the gospel and the preservation of that truth for all ages. Christ's desire is for the church to be unified under the authority of His Word. And there are two main threats to this unity. One, false teaching, and two, bad living. Paul's focus in this passage is on bad living. And in verses 3 and 4, Paul characterizes the kind of bad living that would bring about disunity. Namely, self-centeredness, selfish ambition, and jealousy. Look at verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul does not want us to have a mind that is focused on our own needs, our own interests, and our own gain. Selfish ambition and jealousy threaten the fabric of unity of the local church. As we seek our own way, we create fractures, we create hostility in our self-absorbed decision-making. Think about it. Would you want to be part of a church full of Ebenezer Scrooges? But as we seek unity in sound doctrine and Christ-like humility and service, we will cultivate harmony. We will cultivate peace in the church to the glory of Jesus Christ. And so Paul's exhortation is that we would be humble, that we would count others more significant than ourselves, and that we would look out for the interests of others. This mindset will create unity, and it will create peace. Through verse 2, Paul brings attention to the notion of unity by centering on the mind. He mentions it three times there, and this is the mindset of self-sacrificial humility. This mindset, then, is what Paul is talking about when we pick up in our passage in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, or have this mind as you are in relation to one another. With verse 5, Paul is very quickly summarizing verses 1 through 4 and shifting to push his argument forward. So, why? Why should we have this mindset as we relate to one another? We should have this mindset because this mind is the very mind of Christ, which is ours in Him. This mindset is not just an arbitrary command because Paul doesn't want to deal with problems. It's not like when we tell little kids to use their inside voices. There's no rule stipulating what exactly constitutes too loud to be inside that it needs to be outside. No, it's arbitrary based on the ears of the people in the room. Unlike inside voices, Paul's command is not arbitrary. This mind that Paul is exhorting us to have is the mind of Christ himself, and that is the goal of our salvation or our sanctification, that we would be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ, that we would love like Jesus, that we would think like Jesus, that we would act like Jesus. And look at the second half of verse 5, which is yours in Christ. What does this in, yours in Christ mean? I think it means two things. First, Paul is highlighting our union with Jesus Christ. When we hear the gospel and the Spirit empowers us to believe, the Spirit breathes life into us, the Spirit unites us to Jesus Christ. 
The Spirit of Christ indwells us, and we are placed into the body of Christ. And then the Spirit begins to conform us into His very image. Christian, the mind of Christ is yours. We can have confidence that Jesus is working in our lives and that our efforts to put sin and selfishness to death are effective because it is the power of Christ working in us. The mind of Christ is ours. And now this is not just some subjective feeling. You know, what what do you think the mind of Christ feels like? As the mind of Christ, this will be patterned after Jesus' own example. Which is the second thing that this phrase means. That Jesus Christ is the example. His, his mind is our example of how we ought to live. If we have the mind of Christ, we would assume that it, would, it, it will evidence the same sorts of patterns that Jesus Christ himself evidenced. Humility. Concern for others. The rejection of, of selfish ambition. These are the things that characterize the very life of Jesus. And this is exactly where Paul is taking us. In this way, this passage is deeply, deeply, deeply practical. Practical. Paul is teaching us how we ought to live, how we ought to relate to one another. But notice where Paul is going. To make his point, Paul goes into deep theological consideration about the nature of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Theological thinking is not opposed to practical living, but true theological thinking gives way to proper life and practice. If we want to live like Jesus, we must think long and hard about who Jesus was and is, and we must seek to understand the word that he has given us. And that is exactly where Paul is going. He is exhorting the Philippians to love one another. He's exhorting the Philippians to exercise humility and so create unity within the Christian community. And the way that he does this is that he invites the Philippians to set their minds on the glorious incarnation of Jesus Christ, which is the season that we're celebrating now, isn't it? If we take this seriously, Christmas is an invitation to deeper sanctification, It's an invitation to greater humility as we consider what Jesus Christ did. Because the goal of our sanctification is that we would be conformed into the image of Jesus until He appears when we will be transformed into His glory. And so Christian, we must ask ourselves at the outset, do we really want to be like Jesus? Do we really desire to think like Jesus, to love like Jesus, to to the glory of God? Paul exhorts us to set our minds on Him. And to insist in that endeavor, Paul uses an early Christian hymn or confessional statement to lay out the life of Christ for our consideration. So that we may learn what the Christian life looks like, so that we may see Jesus' example and follow Now, the first thing that Paul highlights in verses 6 through 8 is the humiliation of Jesus Christ. Look with me there. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In this passage, Paul articulates the humiliation of Christ through three main verbs. Look at verse 6. Christ did not count equality. That's the first main verb. Verse 7. 
uh, Christ emptied himself. That's our second main verb. And the third main verb is verse 8, Christ humbled himself. The first verse, ver, uh, the first verb, verse 6, Paul begins with some crucial information for us. The ESV reads, though he was in the form of God. But I think the NIV has it better here. It reads, who being in very nature God. The word here, form or nature, has been taken a number of different ways, but fundamentally what this is communicating is that the pre-incarnate Christ was not some sort of angelic being. The pre-incarnate Christ is the eternal Son of God who is of the very same nature and glory as the Father. This is what the word form is getting at. From eternity past, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit shared an infinite joy, love, and communion. The three persons of the God had dwelt together in eternal glory, existing in perfect triune unity, in perfect self-satisfaction, and in perfect self-sufficiency. God needed for nothing, nor did He have desires that could be fulfilled by anything outside of Himself. The Father giving Himself in the Son, and the Father and the Son giving themselves in the Spirit. In this way, God's very essence is self-giving generosity, love, and self-sufficiency. God's generosity is such that Matthew 5, 44 and 45 tells us that God generously gives sunshine and rain even to His enemies. But God's generosity is exemplified in what Paul is getting at here, which is the accomplishment of the redemption of his people in the sending of his son. Look at the second half of verse 6. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. This can seem confusing, but keep in mind, we've already established that the son was equal with God. He was of the same numerical essence. Therefore, this cannot be understood to imply that Jesus is somehow trying to attain divinity because he already had it. The word translated grasped here in the ESV carries with it the sense of being taken to be used for one's own advantage. So another way to understand this verse would be that Jesus Christ did not count his position or status as divine as a thing to be used for his own advantage. Here's the contrast that this is getting at. Think about the kings of the earth. Think about our wonderful politicians. How many of our public servants leave office with less money and status than they enter office with? Now, I didn't research this, but I'm guessing the answer is exactly zero. Even those who have act, act like they have been so mistreated and scorned by the public, Mitt Romney, signed million-dollar book deals and charged tens of thousands of dollars for 30-minute speeches. The way of the world is that people use position and place of prominence for selfish advancement. This is the contrast that is being drawn because the sun is entirely different. The son glimpsed sinful humanity and he did not act like Scrooge tightening his purse strings and retreating to his bedroom. The son did not demonstrate warm-hearted apathy. That's when you see a problem, you have zero intention to help, but at least you feel bad about it. No, the son saw sinful humanity waging war against God. He saw sinful humanity like sheep without a shepherd, oppressed and being destroyed. And verse 7, he did something about it. He emptied himself. We know from the rest of Scripture that the Son did not act alone, right? The Son came 
But John 3.16 says that the Father sent the Son in the Spirit. When we talk about one person of the Trinity, we have to remember all three persons because all three persons work inseparably. The triune God enacted a plan for the salvation of men, and that plan involved the Son of God Himself stepping into into the creation that He was sovereignly sustaining. The Son, in an act perfectly demonstrating the self-giving generosity of God, emptied Himself and became part of His own creation through the Incarnation. This is the second main verb that Paul uses. Look at verse 7. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. This is a hotly debated passage, and all the debate centers on the idea of Christ emptying himself. What does that mean? Some in evangelicalism will go so far as to say that the Son emptied himself of divinity, and that he actually lost divine attributes to become a human. If the son could somehow give up his divine attributes, like we could hack off an arm or a leg, then that would constitute change in God. But Malachi 3.6 tells us that God does not change. Change in the son would mean that he is not fully God. And it was necessary for our salvation that our Redeemer be fully God. A mere man cannot atone for our sins. So emptying here cannot mean that Jesus somehow became less than God. This emptying cannot refer to the loss of divine attributes or the cessation of divine power. Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man at the same time. He was time-bound in a finite human body. And at the same time, He was eternal and omnipresent in His divine nature. While the sun was sleeping in the manger at Bethlehem, He was simultaneously upholding the universe. He was weak and limited in his humanity, and at the same time, he was omnipotent and unbounded in his divinity. We must hold both the full humanity of Christ and the full divinity of Christ together, indivisibly and inseparably. That is the glory of the incarnation. And in the incarnation, we see that God did not look upon our helpless estate and turn away. No, the Son emptied himself to bring about our salvation. So, that still hasn't answered the question, what is this emptying? Paul tells us right here what this means. Look at the rest of verse 7. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. The Son did not lose anything in the incarnation. Instead, He took to Himself a human nature. The Son veiled His divine glory by taking to Himself a complete human nature and being born under the law. Isaiah 53 describes the event this way. Though He was God, He had no form or majesty that we should look at Him, no beauty that we should desire Him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. The one who possessed divine majesty did not come in that majesty. He did not come as a conquering king. Instead, he came as a servant, born under the law in order to fulfill the law. Christ emptied himself by veiling divine majesty in our humanity by taking on a human form or a human nature, which is how Paul then transitions from this main verb to our final main verb. Look at verse 8. And being found in human form, or that is, being found with a human nature, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, 
even death on a cross. We have just spoken of the eternal glory and the divine power of the Son. And now think again about His birth. The Lord of glory was born in a stable full of animals because the inn did not have a single room for Him. He didn't have a crib or a bassinet. So He was laid in a manger. A manger is a feeding trough for animals. How many of you would accept these circumstances for the birth of your newborn? None of us would, and yet none of us are even royalty. This is the one in whom all the promises of God find their yes and amen. This is the one through whom sin and death will be brought to an end. This is the one who is ushering in the new heavens and the new earth, and he is born beside animals and laid in a feeding trough. Jesus Christ humbled himself. He was born to a carpenter, and he was born under the law. The lawgiver humbled himself in obedience to the law. Now, what is the law talking about? The law is a reference to the old covenant given by God through Moses to the Jewish people. The law itself is a reflection of God's essential righteousness, and that law promised life, but that law could only be found in obedience to the law, or that life could only be found in obedience to the law, as Leviticus 18.5 says. The person who does them, that is, all the works of the law, shall live by them. The problem here is that no one can keep the law because of sin in the human heart. The law held forth the promise of life, but the law did not hold forth the ability to attain it. Instead, the law functioned to reveal sinfulness in every human being and then pronounce the judgment and the curse of death upon all humanity and simultaneously point them to the one that they needed. For human beings to be made righteous, they needed to have the law fulfilled and they needed a righteousness that comes apart from that law. This is why the obedience of Christ is so important here and it's why Paul highlights it. For our relationship to be restored with God, we do not need only forgiveness of sins. We do need the forgiveness of sins, but we need true law-keeping righteousness. And this is exactly what Jesus Christ gives us because He humbled Himself in obedience. Jesus was obedient to every single commandment of God. He never thought a sin. He never spoke a sin. He never committed a single sin. Jesus was perfectly blameless before the law. He fulfilled the whole thing. And furthermore, as Paul goes on, Jesus was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. As I said, we need righteousness, but we also need the forgiveness of sins. And the only way that our sins could be forgiven if, was if our debt against God was paid, that God's justice would be satisfied. Sins cannot be swept under the rug because God is a just judge. Sin must be dealt with, and the wages of our sin is death. Jesus was perfectly sinless. He was totally innocent, and yet he was prosecuted as a vile criminal and slaughtered as one who was accursed. In fulfillment of the law and in obedience, Jesus Christ accrued righteousness by fulfilling the old covenant. And he satisfied divine justice by dying the death he did not deserve under the curse of the law. For the law says, Cursed is every man who hangs upon a tree. 
Christ's obedience in this passage is the very note of our salvation in fulfillment of the law and all of its demands. Notice the sweep of this section. Our passage begins, verse 6, with Christ robed in glory. And it ends here in the most horrifically, shamefully humiliating means of death ever devised by the human mind. The humiliation of Christ was not like sacrificing the Hilton for a Motel 8. The humiliation of Christ was the utter desecration of the one who himself bore divine majesty. And Christians, that's what our redemption cost. Ever start to think that you're a pretty good person? Consider the humiliation of Christ. Ever think that someone is beneath your service? What did it cost Christ to serve you? Christ's obedience to keep the commands of God and Christ's obedience to die under the law were both necessary for our salvation. And this is precisely what our King accomplished for us. Again, think about the contrast between worldly rulers and our divine King. Whereas worldly rulers demand to be served, Jesus Christ came as a servant. Whereas worldly rulers demand obedience, Jesus Christ rendered obedience. Whereas worldly kings demand justice, Jesus Christ satisfied justice by shedding His own blood. And all of this was accomplished for the good of His people. Just consider this morning, how humble is our Savior? How loving and how caring is Jesus for us? How good is He? Now, The central point of the cross is not that it serves as an example. The central point of the cross is that Jesus Christ, by his obedience and death, accomplished everything necessary for our redemption. But that is the fact why this can serve as an example for us. Christ's death was not purposeless. Christ willingly surrendered his life for the sake of his people. He considered his people as more significant than himself. And for the glory of God, he accomplished everything necessary for their redemption. This is why Paul can use this as an example of purposeful self-sacrifice for us. And the humiliation of Christ is the example that Paul uses to exhort us regarding how we ought to relate to one another. In his life and death, Christ demonstrates what it means to take up your cross and follow him. It means that we live and serve for the good of others, just like Jesus did. And this is what true humility looks like. It means that we renounce our status, that we renounce our position and our, to love and serve those in our midst, particularly here, those in the church. Paul has just exhorted the church in Philippi to to exercise humility and loving care for one another. And now Paul is playing the trump card in saying that we are to be like Jesus. Therefore, look at his example and then model that example to one another. So Christian, think about this. Do you think you have a high status or that you're an important person? More important than Christ? Do you think that anyone in the church is beneath your service? Are you above the service of Christ? Christian, what is your limit in terms of loving and serving your brothers and sisters? Is there anything that you can learn from Christ's example about that? Are any of us higher than Jesus? Are any of us the Lord of Christ? Absolutely not. It would be blasphemy to say something like that. And yet, 
Do we act as though we are higher than Christ? Christian, consider the example of Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not consider sin-stained, wretched humanity to be beneath his loving care. Consider the example of Jesus Christ who gave everything for you. Consider what you have received because of Jesus Christ's good work on your behalf. You have received Christ's very righteousness in the place of your filthy garments. Christ has given you clean, new, white clothes. Christian, you have received the forgiveness of sin. You deserved eternal wrath and all of the shameful humiliation of the cross. That is what our sin deserved. And yet Jesus Christ bore that in our place so that we would not have to. Let those truths sink into the depths of your soul. This Christmas, set your mind on those things and see what manner of humility this produces in you. Now, you might be saying, that's hard. And it is. The call to take up your cross and follow Jesus is the call to lay down your life in service to Jesus Christ and his people. But Christian, this is not a rewardless pursuit. Christianity is not just suffering all the way down. Look at verses 9 through 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The depth of Christ's humiliation is unspeakable. And because of Christ's obedience, the Father has now highly exalted him. Verses 6 through 8 were the Son taking initiative in his self-humiliation. Jesus considered the good of his people and he looked out for their interests. But here in verses 9 through 11, we have the Father exalting Jesus Christ. That is the Father considering the good of his Son and looking out for Christ's interests, so to speak. The humiliation of Christ was the veiling of the glory of the Son. The Father's exaltation of Christ is the universal unveiling of that glory as Jesus Christ is declared to be Lord over all creation. Because Christ came in humility as a servant and exercised obedience unto utter humiliation, the Father has now highly exalted Him. Throughout Christ's earthly ministry, during His humiliation, Jesus had rightfully taken the name Lord for Himself. Through His miraculous works and words, Jesus had declared that He was God the Son incarnate. But how did the Jews treat Him when He said those things? They laughed at Him, they heaped scorn upon Him, they accused Him of blasphemy, and eventually they crucified Him because they said that He was lying. The exaltation of the, fa- of the Son by the Father is the utter vindication of all that Jesus Christ declared about Himself. The Father is now declaring that Jesus was truthful in all that He has spoken, that here is my beloved Son, and the Father does this by bestowing upon Jesus Christ the name that is above all names, the title Lord. Jesus had taken this name for Himself, and the Jews had crucified Him for it. In His exaltation, the Father places this name upon Christ and vindicates Jesus Christ as the true Lord of all. Jesus has been declared the universal King over all creation and every knee will bow at His name. The exaltation of Jesus is the Father's declaration that this is my beloved Son. 
It is the Father's declaration that the Old Covenant has been fulfilled and the age of the New Covenant has dawned. It is the Father's vindication of all that Jesus Christ had accomplished. And Jesus Christ now sits enthroned at the right hand of the Father where He is exercising supreme lordship over all things and bringing all things to their final culmination. Jesus will stand at the end of time utterly vindicated as those who have scorned Him, who have heaped curses upon His name, who have utterly denied Him, will meet Him face to face as both Lord and Judge. Those who refuse to recognize Christ now as Lord will one day see Him as the glorious Lord. If you're with us this morning and you don't know Christ as Lord, I urge you, please, Talk to someone about Jesus. You will face Him as Lord, but He stands willing and able to save now to all who would turn to Him in faith. The Father's exaltation of Christ is the unveiling of the Son's divine majesty and glory. And if you remember, this is in answer to Christ's prayer in John 17. In John 17, verses 4 and 5, Jesus prayed to the Father, I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The exaltation of Jesus Christ is the Father's resounding yes, and and the Father pours eternal glory upon the name Jesus. But if you read just a little bit further in John 17... What does Christ pray in, chapter, in verse 24? Jesus prays, Father, I desire that they, that is his followers, also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Christian, as I said earlier, the call to take up our cross and follow Christ is not an easy road. It is a mark, it's a road marked with self-sacrifice and service. It is a road marked with persecution and suffering for the name of Jesus Christ. The call to take up your cross is the call to die for Jesus' sake, to lay aside your wants, to lay aside your desires. It is the call to lay aside our status and our position and all of our selfish ambition. It is the call to love and serve Jesus with our entire way of life. But Christian, the end of that road is not more suffering. The end of that road is that we get to be with Jesus and that we get to behold His eternal glory. Just as the Father answered Christ's prayer to be glorified, we can have confidence that He will also answer Christ's prayer that we will be with Him and that we will see His glory. In fact, this is where Paul is going. Turn over in in Philippians chapter 3. Look at verses 18 through 21. Paul writes, For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. This is what we await. 
that when we stand before Jesus Christ face to face, when we see Him, that we will be transformed into His glory. Is anything on earth more valuable than that? Can any amount of money purchase that? Is any position weightier than to be partakers of the glory of the King of Universe? Jesus' name is higher than any other name. Jesus' name is higher than Putin and Biden and Zelensky and Xi Jinping. Jesus Christ's glory is a weightier, more glory than Caesar and Alexander the Great and Pharaoh. And this is our King. And the promise is that we will get to be with Him. Not only that we will be with Him, but that we will be transformed into His image. What glory is this? This is why the Apostle Paul can say in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Christians, the end of the road is that we will be with Jesus and that we will be made like Jesus. That we will taste and see His glory and that we will be transformed into that glory. And so we conclude this morning where we started. On Christmas, don't be like Ebenezer Scrooge this Christmas and walk through life in self-absorption with your mind set on worldly, earthly things and worldly, earthly gain. Instead, heed the exhortation of our brother Paul and consider Jesus Christ and pray that God will make you like Jesus. Pray that that we will be like Jesus in laying aside selfish ambition and jealousy. Pray that we would be like Jesus in considering the good of others. Pray that we would be like Jesus in our love and in our service. And the promise is that one day, when all things are made new, we will all be transformed into the glory of Jesus Christ. Please pray with me.